Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. In today's podcast, titled Realskiers.com Opens a Vault of Timeless Wisdom, I reveal a stunning discovery. Hiding in my backlog of files were 76 revelations that I wrote between 2013 and 2015. Before you cry a collective, who cares? Be advised that most of them could have been written yesterday. To prove my point, I shall shortly relate a trifecta of somewhat dusty revelations. Aside from some cultural references that date their provenance, the advice they contain still rings true. Over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be posting this trove in RealSkiers.com's Revelations archives, which currently go back as far as 2016. You won't find any of the archived revelations on our free public site, as the treasures they hold are reserved for our paying members. By the way, a year's subscription is only $24.95, or $19.95 for recurring subs, widely regarded as one of the best deals of the new millennium. To give you a taste of what the newly uncovered archives contain, a smattering of the titles include Lighter Isn't Always Better, How Fat Got to Be Where It's At, Is Rocker the New Capski, The Wacky World of Women's Equipment, which I believe is like a five-part piece, Are Skis Overpriced, Hey America, Where Are You Hiking, The Great Insole Debate, The Fallacy of Meter Radius, and how is it in the bumps? Out of the 76 options at hand, I've selected three as representative of the vast assortment we're adding to our archives at Real Skiers. This will bring the total number of revelations posted on Real Skiers to 270. It's akin to the Library of Alexandria for skiers who would like to better understand how every aspect of the ski equipment world works. To kick off RealSkiers.com opens a vault of timeless wisdom, allow me to begin with our dystopian future. In 1985, there were 727 lift service ski areas in the U.S. Today, that number is 427, a decrease of 40%. It's a staple of science fiction that life in the future will be even more of a mess than it is today. Two of this summer's biggest blockbuster movies, Elysium and The Hunger Games Catching Fire, take a dim view of mankind's social evolution from this point forward. The only bright spot is at least one possible future includes Jennifer Lawrence. The evidence of our future unraveling is visible today in climate change, the degradation of our political institutions, and the ongoing attrition among the ranks of specialty ski retailers. This past week, another long-standing ski shop, Reno Mountain Sports, announced it would shutter its storefront by summer. It shouldn't surprise that owners might want to opt out of retail after a 40-year run, all in one location. What's odd is that no one materialized to opt in. Reno will be reduced to one specialty shop and a smattering of chain stores for which alpine skiing is hardly the focus. All across America, the ranks of specialty ski retailers have been gradually thinning since the early 1990s. The same could be said of Donald Trump's hair. Both phenomena are unsettling to observe. While the Donald's hair defies explanation, the erosion of specialty retailing is worth examining, particularly for those of us who love the sport of skiing. Let's flash forward, sci-fi style, to our world 50 years from now. No one really uses the old world skiing anymore. Everyone's a rider now. Skiing was so elitist. Now that we're all riders, ski gear costs less and lessons are, well, who needs lessons? Skis sold without their own built-in bindings are unheard of. 
Domini, 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 we're all certified binding technicians now. If you don't know your setting, just use the handy Golden Zone. It's good for all adults who don't qualify as, quote, walking donuts. Remember our jingle, if you ski in control and you're not shaped like a roll, you're golden. In the future, we have single buckle boots that pin the rider in a forward stance but leave the foot unrestricted. They're so accurately designed, the customer can easily find their own pair just by guessing their shoe size. No more wasting time and senseless expense to get an accurate fit and a responsive shell when self-service works just as well. Skis are so simple to buy, it's crazy. The ski selection kiosk at Boxco makes finding the right model so easy. Just enter your data. You're a guy? You like going fast? You ride the whole mountain? Here's your 170 all-mountain ski. Sweet. It's made by the same manufacturer who makes every other ski sold in the non-polluted world, so you know it's right for you. The mescaline dispensary that occupies the largest space at the Hook Me Up Mall was once a ski shop, or so local legend has it. The former owner's son now rents a space beneath a staircase at the Trump Water Palace and Riding Emporium, quaintly identified on Forest Service maps as Mount Mansfield, where he tinkers with the funny old boots the geezers still wear, trying to coax another season out of a technology that disappeared years ago. If this sounds like a dystopian future less plausible than the Hunger Games sequel, consider that when I was working in product development at Solomon in the mid-1980s, one design consideration was the ability of a product to sell in the self-service environment of the hypermarché. Point being, smart manufacturers will find a way to survive, regardless of which distribution channel remains standing. In any future, skiing will continue as an activity, but it may gradually cease to be a sport at least as practiced by a broad swath of the public. No doubt it's a leap from the closing of yet another fine specialty shop to the end of skiing as we know it, but consider this. If, in the age of the internet, it becomes impossible for a specialty shop to sell skis at a profit, then they can't afford to maintain highly trained veteran employees. Good boot fitters, already rare, become extinct. If you aren't fit properly in a proper boot, you can't really ski. It's not too hard to fill in the rest of the spaces. I wrote that piece on January 10th, 2014. My next selection is dated even earlier. It's called, Yet Another Reason Why Fat Isn't Good For You. I'm not normally a crusader against fat, or any other form of self-indulgence for that matter. My bona fides as a bon vivant have been attested to by no less a luminary than John Fry, the finest editor ever to work the ski beat, along with a few hundred other skiers and revelers of my generation. I like butter in my cooking and marbling in my meat, but even I draw the line at deep-fried dairy products and skis that are too fat for the skier's own good. If you want to read up on the latest and greatest fat skis, you'll find them reviewed at realskiers.com. If you want to hear why they may not be the best fit for your skills, read on. The first fat skis, most of which now look hilariously thin, were created for one simple reason. Skiing powder on long, skinny sticks is bloody hard. Surfing powder on short, wide planks is easier than walking. The point I hope you take away from this sepia-toned historical snapshot is that extra width, then as now, is essentially a crutch meant to aid those lacking in technical skills. The cynical might even conjecture that fat skis were made so helicopter services could serve more customers more efficiently. No customers get better service from heli outfits than the top ski filmmakers. 
By putting extreme exploits in front of millions of eyeballs, ski movies have been the prime mover in driving us all into ever wider platforms. So over the years, we all added a little fat to our ski diet. What's the big deal? Fatter skis are fun. They open up more terrain to less skilled skiers. They're easier to balance on and aren't as tippy as narrow-waisted skis with their elevated platforms. They're so much fun, you feel like you're practically not skiing at all. Which is painfully close to the truth. Fatter skis make smearing, pivoting, and foot steering more rewarding than tipping and bending. That's an instructor's way of saying fat skis don't and won't improve your skiing skills. The trend towards fatter and fatter ski waistlines fits with the American skiers' near-global disinterest in technique. People take ski lessons for the minimum possible period. Ideally, never. Fat skis allow us to maintain the illusion of competence as we swivel and skid pell-mell down the mountain. I realize we all take great comfort in our illusions, and as long as they do no harm, why kick up a fuss? Because skidding and fishtailing down an icy slope on skis is no less perilous a practice than driving down an interstate with the same skill set. If you are on a fat ski, you are less likely to ride on your edges, and if you're not edging, you're not in control. You are, in essence, a menace on the move. When the first lift service skiing begins in a few weeks, we'll all be sharing a very small slope together. Please do mankind a favor and leave your fat skis in the locker. Take advantage of the hard snow conditions and limited space to work on technique and slope etiquette. Rediscover the joys of carving a turn and controlling your trajectory. Remember, fat skis were created for new snow, and this remains their proper domain. They earned their popularity among elite skiers because there's no substitute for flotation. They've won over a much larger population of skiers because they are a substitute for developing better all-terrain skills. Before you opt to make a fatter ski your everyday ride, I strongly advise you first cultivate your technical, also known as carving, skills, or you may never know the happiness that comes with controlling your speed and direction. I penned those words originally on September 27, 2013, and they are just as relevant today. My last sample plucked from the archives is called Bring the Backcountry Code Back to the Resort. America has fallen in love with the idea of backcountry skiing. Along with this activity comes an ethos, a strict codified behavior guide, with a global aim of bringing all participants back alive. No one should ever venture into the backcountry alone. Backcountry skiing is of a necessity a communal experience in which risk, responsibility, and reward are equally shared. In the parlance of mainstream sports, there is no I in backcountry. Backcountry skiers are most definitely their brother's keepers. The success of the individual depends on the success of the entire unit. Knowledge and awareness need to be shared, unfiltered by ego or self-importance. Skiers don't need to be in the backcountry to depend on one another. In a meditation entitled, Don't Feed the Fear Puppy in Snowbird Secrets, I recount a run on the jagged face of Snowbird's upper cirque, when a friend stepped on a barely-covered boulder and lost a ski just as he tumbled into a rock-rimmed chute. There was never a question as to what the situation required. Being the highest up the run, it was up to me to retrieve my buddy's ski from where it was impaled near the top of what looked like a vertical wall of ice, loose snow, and rock. The story has a Disney ending, with a ski retrieved, a great ski companion hurt but not out of commission, and my respect for ice climbers exponentially expanded. 
The point being, whether inbounds or out, skiers have a mutual responsibility to watch out for the other guy and step up when duty calls. This is exactly the attitude that seems to be evaporating inside the ski area boundary ropes. Instead of an abiding sense of community, we have a Hobbesian war of each against all. In the immortal discourse on moral philosophy that is a fish called Wanda, Wanda Gershwitz informs her brilliantly idiotic brother Otto that, quote, the central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. This attitude is equally out of place anywhere people are sharing a snow-slathered slope. This is especially true at this time of year in those parts of the country where the natural cover is still sparse. Every skier of every stripe and skill level are obliged to share the same slender sinew of snow that barely manages to cover the raw earth beneath its adamantine surface. A typical scan of the narrow slope ahead would show a posse of park skiers skiing switched through the throng, a small pack of ex-racers cutting around their slow-moving brethren as if they were gates, snowboarders scouting for any excuse to take air, fathers frantically trying to protect their fragile progeny as they crawl across the hill, strafed by several skiers on board so wide they have minimal control over their trajectory. Half this population is helmeted and earplugged, cutting off at least one sense they could sorely use. While this sort of skiing is an interesting experiment in social Darwinism, which of these species will live to reproduce? It's not a lot of fun and is flat-out dangerous if everyone embraces a me-first mentality. We need to import the spirit of the backcountry, of watching out for the other guy, until it's adopted by all skiers, everywhere, whether on manicured lift-service slopes or deep in the backcountry. The holiday period is supposed to be a time of harmony, of praying for universal peace and mutual understanding. Let's show a little love out there, people. The sport we all share will be safer for it. I wrote those words for realskiers.com and published them on December 28, 2013. There isn't a word of it that still isn't true today. And so I invite you to join realskiers.com and dive into our Revelations archive. It's 270 articles. will broaden your understanding of what it means to be a skier. This has been Jackson Hogan for Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.